0: Today on Pop Talk.
1: Back in the 80s when HIV was a new virus and it was not really understood, not well understood, it was highly stigmatized.
0: Pop Talk is a fact and science-based podcast dealing with important health topics. Our focus is to educate, entertain, and inform you on a variety of health issues. And now your hosts, Dr. Shane Fernando, Dr. Amy rains Melenkoff,
2: Prachi Thopper, and Sukanya Roy.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Pop Talk. Today, we have a panel of guests joining us to discuss HIV and AIDS in time for World AIDS Day. I'm joined by, as usual, by our co-hosts, Dr. Amy Rains-Milenkov, Sukanya Roy, and Prachi Puffer.
3: Hello and welcome. I'm Amy Rains Malenkov, Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Women's Health. I'm excited about today's topic. It was in HIV and AIDS that started my public health career. So I'm excited to be able to bring you information for December 1st, which is World AIDS Day.
4: Hi, my name is Prati and I'm a fourth year TCOM student currently at the UN- UNT. Um, and I'm just excited to be here and share a student perspective. Hi everyone, my name is Sukanya.
5: I'm also a fourth year at TCOM, and I'm also excited to learn during this next hour.
4: And so just introducing our panelists, we would like to welcome all of our guest panelists for this episode. Um, Do you mind just telling us a bit about who you are and what your responsibilities
6: are? Sure, my name is Jen Sardui. I use she or they pronouns, and I am the co-director of Rebirth Equity Alliance um which is a nonprofit that works in tarrant county um building community with inspiring and protecting um black and indigenous people of color and lgbtgnc folks in our community and we do that through lots of things like um, pop-up testing education we have like stigma busting zine that just came out we do mental health access um and I also am the communications director at the National Harm Reduction Coalition, which is a national um, capacity-building and mobilization organization committed to the well-being and health um, of communities that are affected by drug use.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Mukham Day, and I'm with the Texas Black Women's Health Initiative. And this initiative is a collective of regionally located teams throughout Texas. And I'm the chair of the Tarrant County team, but we also have teams in Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, the Golden Triangle, and North Texas. And we focus on HIV education, prevention, and care retention. And our mission is to achieve a sustainable systemic change um, by engaging and empowering Black women uh, to address HIV disparities. And so we do this through um, our three main areas that we focus on are just the faith base. So we work with and partner with churches and black churches in the community. We partner with um, students and youth and then just the community at large.
2: And my name is Lynetta Wilson. I am the Ending the HIV Epidemic Coordinator at the Tarrant County Public Health Department. Um, in my role, it's um, my job to get out the community and help create a plan to end the HIV epidemic in Tarrant County, so I'm excited to be here, thank
7: you. And I'm Misty Wilder, the Director of Healthy Start Program at UNT Health Science Center.
3: Okay, to start to, to start off, for our listeners who may not know, what I'd like to start off first is if you can tell us a little bit about what exactly is HIV and AIDS?
2: Yeah, I could speak to that. So um, HIV is the human immunodeficiency virus. Um, it's a virus, it's super tricky. It attacks our CD4 cells, the fighter cells in our body. Um, when HIV is successful in attacking those cells, the number of them drop. And when that number drops 200, below 200, that's when a person is diagnosed with AIDS. So it's really important to note that biomedical advances have came a long way and people can live long, healthy lives if they're taking their medication that's prescribed and engaging um, in their health care. Thank you. What what
3: are some of the risk factors associated with contracting HIV?
2: So, I guess that's the second part of that question I'll take. Um, Some of the risk factors that are associated are, you know, unprotected sex and the virus being transmitted by sexual partners. Um, The virus can also be passed by breast milk from mom to baby. Um, Sharing needles is also a risk of transmission, and then blood transfusions.
4: So To start off with the AIDS epidemic, that was something that kind of started over in the 1980s that we saw really grow here in the United States itself. Um, And there was a lot of stigma and fear associated around the HIV diagnosis, and people were often ostracized in society. Homophobia was really rampant in the United States. So how have we seen that stigma or attitudes towards HIV shift in the United States since the 1980s?
1: I think we've come a long way since the 1980s um, with stigma, but stigma still does exist. Back in the 80s when HIV was a new virus and it was not really understood, not well understood, it was highly stigmatized. And I was actually looking back on some of the early public service announcements and how it was uh, reported on, and it was very... (laughs) You know, and it inspired fear. And I think just over the years, we've come a long way with the help of like activists in the field who have brought attention to um, stigma and how we use words. And so we have a different toolbox today to combat stigma, like people first language, whereby we are putting the person first rather than their diagnosis. So I am not my diagnosis. And so that's just due to the work of a lot of activists that you know came up with things like the Denver Principles and whatnot. Um, but at, still, we do have stigma today. You know, we have not totally eradicated stigma, and a lot of times it's, you may not feel it or see it, but the person who's being stigmatized understands whether it's their dating or whether they are you know, being stigmatized in their family or through their friends. And then stigma can even um, manifest in healthcare settings. And so um, we are still working to, you know, deal with stigma and the negative attitudes, behaviors and judgments that are related to HIV.
5: Could you give examples of how uh, the stigma or discrimination Um, can interfere with people accessing the necessary treatment to live healthier lives with this diagnosis?
6: I can speak to that people who receive stigmatized care um, or who are likely to believe that their care is going to be stigmatized are less likely to reach out for care and less likely to stay in care. And so when we like create conditions that make it difficult or feel hard or that people don't understand um, around testing, we really create environments where we're not equipping our communities to like take care of each other. Um, And so a lot of the work that like we do is um just talking to people about like varying risk levels everything we do has risk and so just understanding like how that um plays into like our risk choices how they play into our overall health um and like what things that we can do to protect ourselves so PrEP and PEP have come a long way um and like Lynetta was saying earlier there are so many like ways to live a healthy full life Um, out loud with HIV. And so like letting our communities know that one testing is like normal and it's the responsibility of the entire community to be tested regularly. Um, and like understanding that, you know, we do actually still carry a lot of stigma to, from for like men who have sex with other men. And um, we like stigmatize that experience and testing as well. And so creating conditions where like we're not doing that, um, I think is crucial to like building communities that are equipped to in um, the epidemic. Uh,
0: Jen, you um, described PrEP and PEP real quickly. And uh, I, I really want us to to go back for a second because I don't think uh, a lot of our audience is aware of those uh, drugs and medications that's available out there. Could you give us a little bit, either, either three of you would be able to just shed some light on these uh, medications?
1: Well, PrEP is um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and I'm sure Lynette will jump in too. Um, and so currently there are two approved PrEP medications and that's Travada and Descovy. Um, it's part of our treatment as prevention. And so when taken um, daily as prescribed, um, it's over 90% effective at preventing HIV transmission. And so um, Travada is available to cisgender women, but Descovy at this time is not. They're still studying Descovy see, you know, its its effectiveness in women. I would say the difference in terms of taking PrEP is that men, um, who have sex with men would take it seven days before a, a sexual act, whereas women would need to take it 20 days because of just the different physiological makeup of the two. Women would take it 20 days prior to a sexual act.
0: So you're saying they have to plan the, uh, the the, uh, the dosage so seven days ahead of time, um, considering the nature of romantic relationships in any population, sometimes it'll be a little bit more spontaneous. How do you account for that? Does, is there do, does, is somebody able to take the medication a, the, on the day of or a few hours before, or is it something that you have to take at a regular um, every, every several seven day increments?
2: So I would not, um, I'd be careful to speak to this because I'm not a medical provider, uh, but we definitely tell our patients to try to take their medications at the same time every day. Um, I would also just add to what MUCOM said. uh, The only thing that I would add to what MUCOM said about PrEP is that it does not prevent from the other STIs. So uh, we we do want to make sure that we know that. Um, And also um, cost. Uh, A lot of people Know about prep, but they're a little intimidated about how can I get it? Where can I go to access it? What is it going to cost? Like maybe I'm you know engaging in those risky sexual behaviors, but I don't know how I'm going to how can I afford this? Um, so I would like to add that there are several campaigns and tons of resources. Um, Gilead, the drug company that um, produces prep, has an awesome patient assistance program that pays for the medication for those that qualify. Uh, there's federal initi- initiatives right now. Um, there's a Ready Set Prep. Campaign that HIV.gov is really um, um, putting out there, and that they're able to provide free prep. So I would, I would again just like to note that that it is there and it's available. Um, it's available for those who are interested.
5: Is uh, do normal insurances usually cover prep as well?
2: There are, most insurances do cover prep. Um, Again, I, I would not say all, uh, but there are definitely uh, avenues and plenty of resources because we want to end the epidemic and we have the tools to do so. And being able to provide this at low to no cost to those that are engaging in this behavior is definitely our top priority. As I
3: mentioned from the beginning of the podcast, uh, my career started working with women and children with HIV and AIDS, but that was in 1994 in 1995 one of the things and also did uh, HIV testing and um, counseling and it was called something different back then but one of the things that I experienced was um, at that time period um, there wasn't that much community resource or support although it was growing especially meeting the needs of women and children. Um, I'm wondering about today, what what are the community resources uh, for support that's available for individuals um, living with HIV or AIDS?
2: I would love to just take this for a second and brag on our relationship with um, Healthy Start. So prior to this role, I worked as a case manager, specifically working with women and youth, specifically pregnant women. And it's, it's important, right? We don't want to transmit that. We want negative, healthy babies. So uh, part of that is just working with our community resources like Healthy Start and having a nice place to refer those women to um, where where we can manage the HIV in the clinics. Those other social service needs can be managed there. Um, Discussing family planning, making sure they have access to food for themselves and their baby. So it really is just a nice partnership and working together to making sure that our that our, our pregnant moms and our moms, um, our women who are wanting to become pregnant um, have, have the, the best you know, health outcomes. I would also say another community resource we've been able to work with too in the field is the, um, the milk bank, the North, Tes- North Texas milk bank. We've been able to provide donor milk to our moms who want to breastfeed, who want to provide breast milk to their babies, but are unable to because of their HIV status.
4: So I know you've touched upon these community resources that the population can access and things like that. So just kind of shifting perspectives here from a healthcare provider perspective, how can we as healthcare providers do better and be better at creating these safer social spaces uh, to reach out to people with HIV and help make it more comfortable for them to access treatment and address the issue itself?
1: I would say that healthcare providers can do better by making sure that their staff is trained in cultural humility and cultural responsiveness and creating an an environment whereby uh, the patients or clients see themselves, you know, in the signage, creating a culture, uh, even if it's just using the pronouns she, her, and hers, just to show that you're culturally affirming. And also just making sure that people who are living with HIV, if you can, are um, in the workforce there. And so these are a few ways in which, you know, companies can extend themselves.
6: I think that it's so important to remember that like um, the onus of providing good care is on the person providing the care, right? And so many times we like put the onus of like correcting issues with um, quality care into the hand of the person receiving care. Um, And I think so like where I would start on that is um, again, staff training like um cultural humility or trauma-informed care even some things like the lighting in um, our medical spaces can cause a trauma response in people that are trying to like access care and so so many things that we can learn about and simple changes that we can make can make care more accessible um i also think it's important to make like testing a community experience um, and however, like in whatever ways you can, I really admire like pop-up testing models and models that bring testing to communities um, and, and bring um, aftercare like also in those communities and make it something that is truly healing. Um, there is a difference between care and healing, right? And so when we're creating like healing in our communities, we are creating resiliency in our communities, um, I think as well. And like resilient communities um, take care of each other.
1: And some other ways that that manifest is even forms. Something as simple as the forms, making sure that you know that those traditional boxes that you check, they're, they're inclusive and they're culturally, you know, affirming, and they represent all the spectrum of the. That region.
6: makes so much sense. And I think something else that um, I like advise a lot is relationship-based care. When we're thinking about forms. Um, so many times forms are also like violent towards people, right? And you don't know people's history with gender trauma or dysphoria and you don't know people's yeah. history with race. And so making people select a box like that can be like a stress trigger that we're not even aware of. And we don't want to be like causing harm in ways that we're not even intending to. So one way that I like suggest that providers um, work against that is to make sure that the person that they're caring for is like also involved in the care and also participating in the care and an easy way to do that when you have a form in front of you that like needs information right you still as a provider need this information on this form but one thing you can quickly do is just say hey Prachi like I'm going to get the information on this form just so you know um, it's outdated in some ways and um, it's just information that I have to get would you rather me ask you the questions or would you rather you fill this out on your own Um, just let them know what to expect, then you've let them in on the care. Then they're a participant in it and they can consent. That's true informed consent, right? They can consent to being in that practice and being exposed to like what potentially could um, trigger them just by like you taking a few minutes to say a few extra sentences about what's going to happen instead of just like it happening to a person.
1: Absolutely, and oftentimes from a culturally competent model which we know is not its more inferior to cultural humility model, is that, you know, the provider is the one that's all knowing, whereas we should listen more, because the client is the one who is, you know, the authority on their experiences. So that's important is deep listening.
7: And I would like to just add, yes, uh, to uh, co-sign with MUCOM and Jen, is that patient-centered care. And so where the patient is making the um, treatment plan alongside of the provider. So the provider is not saying, this is what you need to do. And then the patient agrees, but it, uh, then is deemed non-compliant because they can't fulfill the treatment plan that the provider has set. So if you do patient-centered care, uh, the Pay, the patient helps the provider alongside the provider to create the treatment plan. And so they know best what fits their situation and their family structure to be able to, um, what we would deem com- be compliant. Um, and so that's why programs like, such as Healthy Starters we help uh, them to navigate this treatment plan that they may not understand. Like, I don't know how I'm gonna get to the doctor cause I may not have transportation or I, don't, I need housing, I need other things, needs met, not only just addressing my a- HIV diagnosis.
4: And just speaking a little bit as a follow-up to that about the responsibility that the healthcare professionals have. Um, you mentioned before the Denver principles, and I know our listeners probably don't know what those are. So could someone just touch upon what exactly those principles are and what that means uh, for, Healthcare provider responsibility?
2: Yeah. So the Denver principles were kind of the foundation um, of, of act- activists back in the 80s, right? So they were written when HIV looked a lot different than what it looks like now. And it was kind of just for, for them, by them. Um, in regards to how we make that uh, apply to healthcare today, I would just say, making sure that people living with HIV, the people that you're serving are at the forefront of those conversations and we're not making decisions for them without having their input there, right? That we're that we're, we're taking into consideration that this is their healthcare, this is their life. Um, and while we can suggest and, and we can give our, our professional opinions on things that they have the right to total self-determination. And I think that's just really, um, really what the foundation of the different principles did for people living with HIV in those times. So HIV
3: is an area where um, we see a lot of disparity. And within Tarrant County in the US, um, we know that HIV affects males at a higher rate. Similarly, affects Black, Latinx, and LGBTQIA populations at higher rates. So I'm wondering how are public health and county initiatives tailored to target these demographics specifically?
2: Um, so what we've really been working on is really focusing on community and partnering with those community partners that do it well, right? So partnering with Jen and her group that have relationships within our key target populations, they are able to reach people that that we might not be able to reach as um, the health department. They're able to go in some of the communities that we might not be able to, to go into. So being able to partner with groups like that and elevate them and lift them up and support them as we can and attend their events and and make sure that uh, people who walk into our buildings know about what's going on. Again, just really just bringing it back to community and it being our responsibility um, to make sure people have access to things like testing, prevention, care, that people know about PrEP and PEP and, and where they can get condoms and uh, where there's access to clean needles and things like that. So. So really just from the standpoint of, we can't do it alone, and this is a community responsibility, so we're all going to have to work together um, to make sure that we are just, you know, we we do the best in reaching those goals to end the HIV epidemic.
0: Thank you, Lynetta. Um, So looking at some of the data that we've received, uh, we see that there's the the, the disparities and uh, when it comes to gender inequality, we see that uh, HIV affects males at a higher rate. is there a particular reason why men have a higher rate for HIV? Is it waiting too long for diagnosis, not going to the doctor, not getting tested, um, anything in particular that could be addressed or targeted by um, epidemiologists, public health people, uh, clinicians, et cetera, and,
2: and improving that disparity? So when speaking to men, I would I would just I would say that especially for men who have sex with men specifically just the anatomy and the way that they have sex puts them at risk um i think some of some of the things that you mentioned uh were also barriers of just just accessing care um i think when you add on being a black male onto that that you've got all the other social determinants of health like um do they know that resources exist is health insurance an issue or a barrier um i feel like in our latinx population sometimes it's that um, there are other responsibilities in that culture of work and, and family, and so maybe um, seeking out health care isn't a number one priority. So I feel like those are those are a few things that kind of uh, impact why some of our numbers look the way that they do in those in men.
0: A real quick side note, um, or just a quick question that's coming out of my, uh, to my mind, uh, we see a lot of uh, Public information and advertising and pushing toward many different diseases. And it almost feels like AIDS and HIV has taken a huge step back in presence uh, in the public domain. There doesn't seem like a whole lot of people are really considering HIV or AIDS to be as much of a threat as it is. Um, is there a particular reason do y'all think that might be? Or is there something that we could do to change that um, perception?
6: I don't know that that. I think that like we continue to fund um, our our like HIV prevention programs. What we're not what we're not doing is like shifting the way we think about HIV, right? Like we're not changing um, how we think about like public health and public safety and funding those and equity, um, and like that is how we create effects where it feels like people are deprioritized, right? It's because we're making like moralistic choices with our funding that's affecting people with lived experience. So um, like it's been mentioned a few times here, like it's crucial that we know um, who's in, the, in our like area doing work so that we're connecting people with resources. Um, and it's important that we also like Remember that our city's budget is a moral document and so many of those dollars that are allocated elsewhere belong to people's care. Um, And we need to advocate for that in in like in the way that we do for um, other programs. And, um, you know, the the decision on how that like how our like funding gets spent and nationally and locally. we decide, um, and that is how it's meant to be, anyways. And I know it doesn't always work out like that, but it's an important framing for me, anyway. As I think about, um, as I think about like creating conditions where um, people with HIV are like just part of their communities in the most integral ways and what running these programs, right? We need to find like people who are already like the people living with HIV who are already doing this work and we need to um, amplify their work rather than recreating it and fund their work um and so many times we create programs and stuff like that that aren't meeting needs and it's just so important that we like our work we're like embracing our collective power um when we think about like how we prioritize um HIV in our communities
5: it definitely sounds like um funding could definitely be changed and that could lead to much better outcomes um what do you feel like is preventing Uh, us from completely eradicating HIV and AIDS? Because we have been having the treatment for many years now. So what do you feel like are some more barriers apart from funding in that?
1: I think when you're talking about eradication and the terminology, that's like totally eliminating zero transmission, zero prevalence. And the only disease that's been eradicated has been smallpox. So we are talking about ending or eliminating HIV. And there are actually some areas that have successfully ended it as an epidemic like San Francisco and New York. And so we have the tools to, we have the political will right now to end it. And so I'm confident through um, initiatives like what Lynetta heads up, ending the HIV epidemic we will be able to end um, the epidemic in Tarrant County. Does that mean there will be zero new um, acquisitions? No. We will probably always have um, people acquiring HIV or what it does indicate an epidemic in terms of the levels.
4: And just as a follow-up to that, how have things such as housing stability and food support also acted as barriers to helping prevent this disease.
2: Yeah, I would say just as a former case manager that those, those, that's real, right? Like if, if I've got a patient in my office that doesn't have food to eat or a house to sleep in to, or a bed to sleep in tonight, they're never gonna take their medication, right? We've gotta, we've gotta take care of those things first in some cases. So a big piece of that is just knowing the resources in our community uh, right now. Uh, there, there are several agencies that receive Ryan White funding that are able to help people living with HIV with things like housing and transportation, um, access to get, or getting their meds and paying for it, insurance assistance. So I, I feel like a lot of it is just people, so, some people just don't know what's out there. They don't know the resources that are there. So maybe they're scared to get tested just because um, what if it does, what what if that test is positive? Um what happens next. And I would, I, I want to go back and kind of touch on something that MUCOM said and how we're going to end the epidemic and why now kind of deal. And I want to note that like I think in the past we, we did a lot of prevention did their work here and then treatment did their work here. So you kind of lived on that, that negative and positive instead of the thought of status neutrality. So regardless of what my test shows, I should be guided or navigated with appropriate resources. So if I come in to get tested and I test negative, somebody should offer me condoms. Somebody should tell me about PrEP. Somebody should tell me about, you know, food insecurities if I disclose that I'm having that as an issue. Um, Same thing, if I come in there and I test positive, then somebody needs to immediately refer me to care. So I think that that wasn't done well in the past. We kind of worked in our silos. And and our hope is that moving forward, that that we'll do a better job as a community of working together to make sure that we are addressing the whole individual and making sure that all of their sexual health needs are met.
0: Could we go back a little bit? We've talked about some of the health disparities, but um, one of the things that we wanted to highlight was the diagnosis of new uh, cases among African-American women. What factors may have led to this discrepancy in the delayed diagnosis? Um, Again, we're going back to again the uh, concept of social determinants, etc. But anything specific that you can point out?
1: I would like to speak to that first. And so um, some of the Factors that contribute to Black women receiving a late diagnosis or being late to test, late to treat, is a lot, of, oftentimes, they lack the perception of risk. So if I'm in a married or long term relationship, I may not perceive that I'm at risk because I'm in a monogamous relationship, not really understanding it needs to be mutually monogamous. And sometimes, um, to be real, love can trump protective factors. Um, also, um, just because of the trajectory of HIV, it, you can go after the acute phase, which is within two to four weeks, you may not receive another, or get another symptom for years. And so oftentimes, Black women are actually diagnosed in the emergency room, more often than not. And that's once a symptom has, you know, arisen. And so once you have a symptom, that usually um, shows that a person has an opportunistic infection. And so if that is the case, an opportunistic infection gives you an HIV, um, an AIDS diagnosis. Um, Women and their role of caregivers for their family. Women are socialized to take care of everyone else first, from their children, to their husband, to their families, to the home. And so putting ourselves on the back burner oftentimes is what we've historically been socialized to do. And then we had talked about some of the socioeconomic and, and larger structural issues like lack of stable housing, um, also community disinvestment Um, racism, um, lack of insurance, underinsurance, and then inadequate wages. All of these things also contribute. And then lastly I would just say power differentials within relationships.
3: So of course um, my favorite topic is pregnancy and maternal health and that's something I'm very um, passionate about. So my question has to do with um, what are the unique challenges of, women, of mothers that are, HIV, that are living with HIV?
2: I would say some of the, the challenges that I see really is the mental health um, piece of it. I see a lot of moms around breastfeeding uh, for, for certain cultures. It's a big deal. Um, sometimes they're afraid that they're going to be outed. They're going to have to disclose their HIV status because they're not able to breastfeed um and and that really is a struggle for some of the moms that, that that i've served um another barrier is just and i wouldn't even say moms i'd say the women who are wanting to become moms right that are that are in the family planning stage um just the fear that they live with the anxiety of, of trans of, of passing along um the hiv virus um again i, I just think it really just all it, all goes back to the mental health. And that's why that's a really important resource um, to tie our, our pregnant moms in, uh, especially. I think it's important for them to have case management support, um, somebody walking them through, um, navigating them through all the, the systems and other resources that are out there. Um,
7: I think a lot of pregnant women deal with a lot of shame and guilt um, during that phase as well and uh, what we see typically when it comes to home visitation is that most of them we can't visit with them in the home because they don't want us they are afraid that their status may come up in the conversation and so most of the time um, we can't uh, they say well my family doesn't know my status and so uh, we typically have to find another way to address uh, their status uh, when we're in on a home visit and making sure that we're not bringing it up. So a lot of shame. And I do agree with the breastfeeding because most of them do want to breastfeed. And that's why uh, Healthy Start was a strong advocate for getting the milk uh, purchased and making sure that we know that uh, hospitals can give breast milk um, to women uh, that desire it. And I want, we advocate for that to uh, happen. Uh, for them so that they know that they want that right. And so we try to do our best to advocate.
3: We really can't have this conversation today without talking about how HIV and COVID, how COVID has affected people living with HIV or AIDS or how it's complicated the situation. So would anyone like to kind of uh, weigh in on COVID, um, what's happening?
6: Sure. I think um, any healthcare, like any um, race-related healthcare disparities, are exacerbated in like conditions of high stress, like global pandemics. Um, and so, what we're seeing like now with COVID is one, we've like had to adjust so much in our lives, um, including how we test and when we test and how much we test. Um, due to COVID, right? And so like the results of that drop, that like pullback for months and months, we won't know those results for years and years um, because that's how data works, right? And so um, it's really, uh, the COVID like impacts specifically are um, an unknown that like they're known and also an unknown that uh, we, you know, are having to hold while still like navigating our way through um, something we have little experience with.
2: I would just add that, you know, like, like COVID, we know that HIV is hardest hit among communities of color and folks that don't have equitable access to testing and prevention and care resources. So it, 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 looks, it looks
7: the same. They're both heavily stigmatized. So most people who have uh, COVID is stigma with that and HIV, uh, people, people who have HIV also, um, it's heavily stigmatized.
3: So I know that there's, um, we've talked, to, we started off the conversation today talking about December 1st being World AIDS Day. And tell me what might be happening in our own community on December 1st.
7: So a group of us uh, community partners came together and we are going to offer uh, a physical distance safe, COVID safe um, event in Como Park. And Como uh, we know is one of uh, predominantly African-Americans uh, as well. And so we want to make sure that we take um, the services to communities that may not access health care. Uh, and so, and we also, and before anyone says, well, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but as our good friend, uh, Jen has said many times to me is that people are still having sex and still at risk for getting HIV. Uh, so we need to take testing to them. So we will ensure that, um, that we will physical distance and we have testing, we have, um, pregnancy and HIV will be a table to talk about that we have a table that will talk about uh, mental health diet and diagnosis and so and then we'll have information on prep as well and I may be meeting some up then we'll have um some food and we'll have a DJ and so what we're really trying to do is destigmatize testing and that people will feel comfortable with getting testing and that not saying oh you got a go around the corner down the street to get a test and hide behind this corner and secretly sign this paper. But then here you are, it, uh, get a test and uh, we're here to support you. And so there's uh, about four or five agencies that have come together to make this event happen. And we're gonna have on our red and we're gonna rock our red. All right, <laughs>
3: sounds like a good event and um, especially needed not, uh, not to ignore realities during COVID. And I, I like that. So let's, um, if, if we can, once again, if you can kind of just share what are some resources for people that you would like our listeners to know about? Can we start with you, um, Lynetta?
2: Yeah, I'll go first. I think one of the biggest resources um, that I like, love to plug is HIV.gov. It's uh, super easy to navigate. You can literally type in your um, zip code in the top of the toolbar and get all sorts of resources for HIV services, um, if you are a person living with HIV, or also uh, resources for things like PrEP. Uh, So again, HIV.gov is a great resource, um, lots of of information, reputable information, um, and also they have a great resource page regardless of where you are. Um, The other um, thing I would also mention as far as like local resources is the Tarrant County Administrative Agency. You can find them on uh, Facebook and Instagram, but they also are a a nice point of contact to help um, or act as a point of entry to kind of get folks um, into the services that they need.
7: Also, there's Healthy Start, a home visitation program. Uh, We work with women who are pregnant or parenting. And so we help them to navigate systems and advocate for them um, through to have a continuity of care.
1: And I'm a consultant for the AIDS Outreach Center, AOC, and I have a women's group um, for women who are living with HIV. And we meet weekly. And during COVID, we've been meeting via telehealth. And so it provides the science and treatment information to women living with HIV, as well as a social support system for them.
2: Before Jen goes, I did also want to note that there are options for melon um, for tests. I've, I mentioned that, that Facebook page you can go to and, and you can request a, a self-test kit that will be mailed discreetly to your home. So if you aren't comfortable, uh, coming to the health department to get tested or one of our partner agencies um, or you're not comfortable coming to the event on uh, World AIDS Day, but you do need to get tested. Please go to that website. Um, I believe it's TakeMeHome.co and, um, and Get a take-home test. You can get up to two you can. it comes with directions on how to a- administer the test and resources regardless of which way the test shows up The test results. Right? Wow, that's incredible.
3: Hey Jen, did you have any resources
6: other than the ones that have been mentioned? Sure, <laughs> sure I'm just like directing which ones Lynetta's like. I'm like Lynetta you told me about that one, tell me about this again. <laughs> um, okay, um, I, I think that I'll just plug Rebirth for a minute. We have um, started doing like um, encouraging people to test with their pods. Uh, we leave a lot of people out that are in non-traditional relationships right and we remember that through covid people are really hanging with the same people all the time and so what we've started doing at rebirth is meeting people with um like a test kit or we have them at our events for pickup and they're just like a bin that you can pick up that have um, enough tests like 10 or 15 for whoever is in your like pod that you are seeing regularly, instructions, follow-ups, and also some things that to encourage rest and healing in our communities. Um, and we like offer those so that people can test in their communities. So if you're thinking about testing and you maybe wanna do it with people you already know, that is possible. Um, you can hit us up at hello at rebirthequity.org. Um, we also just came out with the zine and which we are like happy to distribute if you need some mail, it's called Tested and Rested. And it's about knowing your sexual risk and um, creating more safety around our risks in our communities.
0: Thank you all so much. Um, before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you all the an opportunity now to just, if you have any closing thoughts or takeaway points that you'd like your audience to really just remember and hold on to. Anything you might suggest, some advice, some guidance, uh, or just something that you just really want them to remember?
2: I think for me, just, I know Jen said it earlier, but that it is a community responsibility to end the HIV epidemic in Tarrant County, and that it takes the work of all of us, right? Um, so just just to remember that that, term, that testing is normal. Like if we are having sex, we need to be getting tested. So really to just normalize testing, Uh, to reach out, um, uh, and and really that that it's a community responsibility and we are all in this together. Um,
6: Um, I mean, just for like ignoring the fact that people are having sex and using drugs doesn't mean that sex and drug use go away in our community. So focusing on solutions that meet people where they are with the resources that they need to make the choices that they want and have full autonomy um, is so important. And I want people to take that with them.
1: I think in the Texas Black Women's Health Initiative, we have a saying that change begins with me, HIV ends with us. And so I just wanna stress that, that make sure that we're doing our part to combat stigma, make sure that we're doing our part to pass along these information and resources. And uh, HIV ends with us, it's going to take all of us as a community to end this epidemic.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much, everybody. Um, We appreciate your participation in our panel and uh, the amount of information you gave us is profound and and I'm sure a lot of us are going to have to take a little time to think through it. Um, So thank you once again for joining us and thank you listeners for joining us on this episode on HIV and AIDS. Um, Thank you for helping us learn about this important subject and we a uh, side note, we do anticipate still recording the Prison Health episode. However, due to the Thanksgiving holiday, this episode may be coming to our podcast at a later date. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope to uh, have you again on our next episode.
4: And if you would like to reach out and share your thoughts with us, you can always reach us at uh, on our Instagram at poptalkunthsc or on our Facebook at facebook.com slash poptalkunthsc. We would always love to hear from you guys, and thanks so much for tuning in.
2: Pop Talk
0: is a production of the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and is produced at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth. To learn more, please visit our website at unthsc.edu.